Hello and welcome to the D2C Podcast. I'm Eric Dick. Today, I'm low-key excited about my chat with Ryan Rouse, Chief Digital Officer at HiKey. HiKey is committed to helping America snack smarter by removing sugar from our favorite foods one craving at a time. Today's talk focused on the secrets of HiKey's enormous success with Amazon and how that halo effect has helped their other D2C efforts. We talk about why Ryan is a lifelong marketing learner, and we highlight a few of his favorite mentors as well as resources. We chat about the pros and cons of marketing a better-for-you product, and we also chat about how Ryan implemented bundling strategies that raised their D2C AOV by over 40% in his first few months on the job. Hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. On with the show. If people want to shop on Amazon, we shouldn't have a problem with that. And I'm guilty of being in that same camp in the past where I would use the mindset of, hey, that's fine if they buy there, but then how do we get them over to our site? When ultimately where they want to buy is where they want to buy and we should be cool with it. I've, I've been at a number of stops along the way where we've had really healthy P&Ls on the D2C side, on the Amazon side, on the retail side, and we have healthy P&Ls on each of those channels because of all the other channels. Hey retailers, ever feel like your shopper experience feels just like everyone else's? That's probably because it does, and it shouldn't. Bluecore matches online shoppers with the products they'll buy next across channels like email, on-site, paid media, social, and SMS. With Bluecore's retail data and predictive intelligence, brands automate personalized content, offers, and recommendations for each individual shopper, enabling brands like Noble to increase conversions by 15% and drive a 46% increase in repeat buyers. Visit bluecore.com to discover why brands like Noble, Express, and Bliss chose Bluecore to automate and scale their multi-channel personalization. Ryan, it's great to have you here on the podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about your position as Chief Digital Officer at Hikey? Yeah, good to be here, Eric. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Chief Digital Officer at Hikey means I run all things e-commerce, which more specifically means Amazon, our Amazon business, which is third party, our D2C business, and the marketing and advertising side of our third party retail business. So you came on summer of 2021. What were your first big moves that you made on the team in order to to take the product to scale? The first thing that we did, I mean, it was a more holistic type of situation. We really, up until the point that I got here, the, the e-commerce team was fairly segregated, right? So you had Amazon as its own sort of silo, direct-to-consumer, was wrapped up under the broader marketing and branding team. And um, third-party retail was all exclusively under sales, right? So what we did was really, we worked to build a center of excellence under e-commerce, right? There's so many roles and responsibilities that overlap when it comes to e-com, right? When you're talking about building out PDPs or you're build, talking about advertising and how you optimize advertising. So that's what the first thing that we did. Um, I can get into some of the stuff that we did on the direct-to-consumer side, but that was the first major move. And I would say that that, that, has, that has bore more fruit than anything else that I've done since I've been here. Interesting. All right. And then what next? Direct-to-consumer. So the direct-to-consumer side of the business, um, we have such a, a massive Amazon following in business, right? A lot of success on the Amazon side of the business, which makes direct-to-consumer a little bit challenging. I also think it helps in many ways, but um, the strategy up until the point that I got here was really trying to compete, I would say, like for like with, with retail and with Amazon more specifically. 
Um, so the av- the average order value when I got here was sub $50, $49, right? So the first thing that we had to do was really drive that up. We had to create a value proposition, I guess, at a macro level. And what I mean by that is what are, what are things that we can create on direct-to-consumer that you can't get anywhere else so that there is a reason to come shop here? Because like for like, why would you not go shop on Amazon? If we have 50,000 reviews, if you have bestseller badges, I mean, and, and we all know the experience that a, a consumer would rather have, right? Overnight delivery, free delivery. It's just easy. They don't have to enter payment info. So we shifted the strategy. The way that I talk about it is we really, we wanted to turn our direct-to-consumer, highkey.com, we wanted to make that the Costco of e-commerce, of our e-commerce channel, meaning buy in bulk, virtual bundles, increased average order value, uh, all things in one that you can't get anywhere else, um, just like Costco is to the retail side of the business. So we went really hard into a lot of those types of things. And and to date, our average order value now for first-time customers is over $70. Just back into Amazon a little bit. It sounds like the Amazon business was really established kind of before you joined. What can you say about how you got to that level? Was it really just like a rolling thunder thing where you just acquired enough um, reviews and and purchases that it just kind of continued to roll? What do you attribute the Amazon success to? Our founder, um, AJ Patel, is has a history of building very great presence on Amazon with multiple brands. So this is his fifth brand, I think. he's had a, He's had a say in a number of other ones, but fifth brand that he's launched. And so... AJ has a lot of experience on Amazon. Um, my right hand at High Key, her name is Maddie. She's worked with AJ at a number of different brands, and they're very good at Amazon. And so, when I say good at Amazon, more specifically, it's it's the things you need to succeed on Amazon, which we all know it's it's the fundamentals that drive all business in every channel, everywhere we go, right? So, doing the fundamentals at scale, I think, is how all brands win on any channel, and that's what. What high key before my time and still now is able to do on Amazon. So that's, yeah, that's understanding what's going to convert, doing a ton of testing on PDPs, right? So images, renders, uh, constantly testing titles, uh, really making sure that the bullet points are both have that beautiful mix of search engine optimization and flow and being legible and readable and things like that. So I'd love to say there's a a ton of things that we did differently, but we have a great product and then you did the fundamentals at scale. And if you do that over time, you'll end up winning. And I imagine I was just kind of going over some of your LinkedIn posts and your your Twitter posts. uh, And I imagine before you decided to take on this role, checking out the fundamentals of the business were a big part of your decision factor. I I was just reading a post about about how so many people kind of feel you can go into e-commerce and, you know, gone are the days where you can slam a bunch of ads into something and see it scale. You really need to have those fundamentals dialed in. True, true. I mean, I think that um, for me, some of the uh, really biggest opportunities that I saw in this in this role for me was from a leadership and strategic perspective what I already talked about bringing the e-commerce team together and and creating some leverage for the brand inside of the entire team uh, but yeah on the direct to consumer side specifically you have an amazing product you have shown the ability to get into all channels with a product that people love but the direct to consumer side of the business wasn't as successful as any of them had wanted it to be but you have the fundamentals in place, which in this case is beautiful brand and a beautiful product. 
if you have those, the, the fundamentals become a lot easier. The tactical fundamentals on channel tactical fundamentals become a heck of a lot easier if you've got a great product. If you don't, there's no amount of fundamentals you can do within the channel that are going to grow the business as much as you want. Back to your your raising of your AOV, because I think that's just such a critical factor for especially anyone in the CPG game uh, on D2C. And did you have to build out new websites? Did you build out new landing pages? What were some of the critical things that actually allowed you to uh, create those bundles that raised the AOV? Right, totally. So first thing, virtual bundles, and I'll just get more specific. Some people have different terminology. We wanted, the most beautiful thing in the world is uh, bundles that from the eyes of the consumer are different than what they can get elsewhere, but ops doesn't have to do anything different, right? So operations in 3PL don't have to do anything different because there's nothing worse than going to ops and saying, hey, we're gonna have you kit a whole bunch of new types of products, right? Adds cost, adds complexity. So we looked at our best-selling products and we said, which of these, as they currently stand in their sale units, can we just lump together and sell together? What are the ones that we know taste the best, that consumers have the highest reviews and, and people love to come back and reorder? We took all of those products and we put them, we put together six or seven bundles, high margin bundles, but also our best tasting products uh, through the lens of the consumer anyway. And then we led with that. Um, we did a couple things on that front. Um, we built landing pages, obviously, uh, so that paid media could be pointed directly at that. We also did, uh, we are continued to do, but we're doing tests on the homepage to direct people towards those. So we put those on the bestsellers page. We put a bestsellers tag on the homepage of the website so that when you go there and then those bundles are high up on the bestsellers uh, PLP, right? And then just, you know, the path towards that page, you're gonna find in a lot more places now than you ever found before. So that's sort of the front end, right? Let's just make sure everybody knows that these bundles. Now, we're also doing some things when you add, uh, we're doing cross-sell, upsell type stuff. So when you add any product to a cart, we're then popping up one of the bundles, right? Um, we also added, so what we did was we added um, some of our best-selling products. We have, um, our best-selling product is a chocolate chip Three pack of two ounces, three small bags, 2.2 ounces each. That's our best seller. That's our hero skew. That's an Amazon product. Um, we sell in Costco a larger bag of that, right? Um, so we did the same thing. We incorporated the larger bag onto D2C since we're making it anyway. Again, no, no, no stress on ops, no additional work. Just bring some of that over to R3PL. Let's sell that. So if you add the three two packs, to your cart on our website, then we immediately show a pop-up that says, hey, you know, we have this value pack. It's larger, it's bigger. And we're doing the same thing with bundles. Any of the products that you add on the website that are in a bundle that we're offering, we're showing you that bundle to give you the opportunity to know that this is a price savings on a per ounce basis. There's a lot more in here. As long as you're buying that, you might like these other things. Um, and then lastly, just post-purchase upsells, right? Post-purchase offers. So um, just pretty standard uh, on the thank you page um, after checkout saying, hey, here's one more thing if you want to throw in your cart. And then even on the thank, thank you, thank you page, putting, you know, showing additional offers there. Any apps you can <clears throat> shout out that were sort of essential in this process? Were you doing this all on natively on Shopify using Shogun or, or what kind of tools? We are using um, Zipify pages for the landing page stuff and we're using one-click upsell uh, for for the cross-sell upsell. I've, I've learned a lot from Azure Firestone over the years, so I'm sort of, I'm inclined to use him wherever I can. 
I noticed that. This is a bit of it. I want to get into the ads that kind of drove to, uh, you know, to these bundles uh, in a second. But I, but we'll use this as an opportunity. I noticed you have a lot of certifications from Digital Marketer. Um, you know, this is this is a space that I've been in now for a long time. This sort of education space. I know Ezra well. I know Russell. Know these guys. And uh, I'm always interested to hear how you know accomplished marketers have the confidence to go into these roles and and make these changes and and like how much how much has education been part of your journey as a chief digital officer? So much, so much. I mean, the, the very short version of my background: I started a business, an online only business, with a friend from college in 2013. It was prepared meals. We could only sell them online. I had zero marketing experience, zero online marketing experience, and that showed. We couldn't hire agencies. Obviously, everyone knows the story. You're hiring agencies, expecting them to be your strategist, down to your tactician. We were hiring team members who probably were pretty good, but they had no guidance from me or us. So it was at that time that I dove in and, and found the e-learning area and, and found it differently than, than I had previously in my career. But it's been a huge thing for me. I mean, at that point, I was buying courses to learn Facebook ads, and I was running our Facebook ads ourselves, running Google ads, um, running email. So it's been, I, I can't speak enough to how important learning has been for me because if you don't have a sound, I didn't have, I, I didn't come up through a large brand where I got to touch a little bit of each of those areas and then gain an understanding that allowed me then to manage those areas. I literally learned every single one of those areas, executed on every single one of those areas, and now I'm in a much better position to be able to tell, to help teammates, right? To help people on my team with strategies because I've literally pushed the buttons on every single one of those. It's still, for me, a default for me not to jump into one-click upsell and build funnels. I was doing it yesterday and one person on the team, that is their job, right? So it's it's for me taking a step back, sending them a note saying, hey, let's look at these together because I just love it. It's not me trying to micromanage. I'm just used to that's I've done all that myself and I'm used to and I love it. Yeah, I think that's a theme I see uh, across all the successful people that I chat with in this area is that idea of lifelong learning. And that people love having their hands on the tool still, even when maybe they they shouldn't or they have they have team members who do that. What, what does your marketing team look like at this point? Yeah, so we've got um, we've got an Amazon team. We're in the process of, as I said, sort of uh, moving these across and figuring out like someone who works on PDPs is going to work on PDPs for third party, going to work on them for D2C and going to work on them for Amazon. We're still in the process of transitioning that. But I've got a VP. Uh, her name's Maddie. I spoke about earlier. She is as good as anyone out there when it comes to Amazon marketing. Like I would put her on, on a short list of... Uh, the shortest list that's out there with Amazon. She's got a fairly large team on the Amazon side of the business that we are now trying to incorporate into the direct-to-consumer side. But we've got five people on the Amazon team as it currently stands. We've got three people on the direct-to-consumer team, and then we've got one person heading up third-party retail. But again, think about at at, um, at the tactical level now, we're starting to just cross-train and cross-function so that they're going to be a little bit more siloed. Um, not in a bad way, but PDPs are PDPs, and we're going to have you know the person who sort of owns PDPs is going to go to brand and get all the assets that we need, and then from there decide which platforms they're appropriate for, they can work on, so on and so forth. Reviews is another thing. Reviews on third-party, reviews on D2C, reviews on Amazon. The strategies... Um, the the outcomes we want are the same. Some of the tactics you can use are a little bit different, but still, someone who's really really good at at understanding what needs to be done from a review standpoint, 
in my opinion, should be working at those across anywhere where we have reviews online that that need to be generated. I like that. And it's you, you talked about siloed, but I think most of the time when people are talking about siloed, it's like the Amazon team is siloed and you don't get enough learnings from Amazon out to these other players. You're talking about siloing by discipline across platforms, which sounds inherently less siloed to me, um, just because all the cross-platform learnings that are generated. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So it's 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 really just taking the knowledge that we, I think, previously had dedicated to more the Amazon side of the business and, and understanding that this works all e-com is e-com to a certain degree. And these these strategies work across platform. What it also does for those people is they get the experience in direct to consumer and third party. Right. To me, I think what I would what I would want out of anyone on my team is when we say e-commerce, because there's so much riffraff out there about uh, considering Amazon a competitor to direct to consumer or third party. At the end of the day, as a brand, especially consumable brand, you sell everywhere that you possibly can where your customers are. And none of these should be considered competitors. They should be considered different distribution channels that we should love getting money from and getting customers from. So I think people who are a little bit more well-versed and understand because the strategies are different, um, but the, the fundamentals are the same. So I think getting them cross-trained is, can only help them from a career perspective. And you already spoke to it, but giving people a reason to, to, to buy directly or you know through these bundles or th- through other sort of experiences that you create on your site that you can't get on Amazon, uh, you, you, just, you just need to give them a reason to be there. You, you accept what you get from Amazon, but you give them a reason to be on your site as well. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, th- there's... if. If people want to shop on Amazon, we shouldn't have a problem with that. And, I, and I'm guilty of being in that same camp in the past where, where I would use the, the, um, the mindset of, hey, that's fine if they buy there, but then let's, how do we get them over to our site? When ultimately where they want to buy is where they want to buy and we should be cool with it. I've, I've been at a number of stops along the way where we've had really healthy P&Ls on the D2C side, on the Amazon side, on the retail side, and we have healthy P&Ls on each of those channels because of all the other channels, right? It's really it's really challenging to build a healthy P&L at scale um, on just one channel. So I think that's the thing that if, if people haven't had experience with that, that is the benefit of that, aside from obviously all the cross, uh, the, the halo effect that all that's going to have on your brand. It's the P&L works because of all of those channels, not not despite it. Let's talk about ads a little bit. So you've built out your your customer experience. You've raised your AOV. And now in the D2C channel, you go to market with ads. What was your sort of go to market strategy with with your ads across, say, Facebook, Google, any other platforms that have been been key? Yeah, more. I mean, the AOV was a huge shift because that was going to help our paid media for obvious reasons. Um, But it was I want to incorporate more storytelling into our advertising strategy. Right. Uh, In my opinion, uh, thinking about starting out with a brand and, and high keys by no means starting out, but when starting out, if no one knows about your brand, then if ads are going to be the first thing that they see, then I would want them to know what the product does, what it is, uh, why it's different, and how it's going to help them. And that sounds so maybe cliche and straightforward, but if you look at a lot of ads out there, they're not incorporating that. 
there's different ways to do that, right? You can send to a, a blog post uh, or advertorial type of thing where there's a little bit more storytelling. You can do it right inside the ad. You can do it with a video. But I just don't think that that was being done before I got here. And so we really wanted to first fix the AOV because that was making paid media much more challenging. From there, we say, okay, now we know that first order AOV is high enough to really make paid media work better at scale. So now it's, now it's an advertising game of of those types of things. So really looking at how do we storytell more, not not in the not in the all the way on the farthest end of the spectrum storytelling, but not on the other end either where you're just showing a product and giving its benefits and saying go. Right? A little bit more copy in that ad or a little bit more copy on the page that they're, they're landing on goes a really long way to help people understand exactly what it is that you do. Which platforms are you seeing the biggest success from top of funnel? Yeah, top of funnel, Facebook, uh, Instagram, Google Shopping, and TikTok. So we started testing TikTok uh, in the last few months. Uh, I I was, uh, you know, I, I guess I'm a little bit older school now. It sounds funny for me to say that now because I don't feel like I'm that old, but but I am older, right, uh, relative to some out there. And, and uh, TikTok is new. So I think I, I fell in the camp that, that I used to chuckle about other people when Facebook and Instagram, Facebook specifically, became big, saying that your customers are not on this platform. And now I was the one guilty of saying, oh, is TikTok really right for us and our, our demographic? And, and so, um, like all good marketers, we say test it, right, rather than have an opinion, test it. And, and TikTok is certainly, this is not new news, but TikTok certainly feels like Facebook did five or six years ago. The CPMs are super low. We're seeing great conversion. We're seeing super low click costs and, and the people are going on to buy and obviously top of the funnel, filling bottom of the funnel. So we haven't gotten quite into um, using TikTok influencers yet uh, to sort of white label from their pages or anything like that. But um something that we're we're going into and and we are doing a lot of influencer stuff just to circle back so influencer uh, created ugc and then white labeling from their their pages and sending and that's great top of the funnel stuff just for user acquisition on the newsletter side tiktok has just been a, an absolute boon my thing is you know i'm I, i'm occasionally on reels i am i will admit i think we're both 42 but i am or we're in our 40s let's say uh, and I'm on TikTok and I'm always, I'm blown away by the depth of its algorithm comparatively to something like Reels, where Reels skims along the surface of whatever's popular, whatever meme things there are. You know, my TikTok feed, you know, it, it knows a lot about me. It knows a lot of my, about my sort of deeper interests. Um, and so it, it makes sense to me that that TikTok is having uh, a ton of success. I'm curious about your advertising strategy there. What we're doing is we we use something we talk about at Pilot House a lot is employee generated content, essentially, where you've got, you know, you just it's the thing that you can make quickly. You obviously want to get in influencers and people directly in your in your target demographic. But that ability to spin out quick storytelling style content that is slightly tied to the memes of the day, but not overly. I'm just curious, like, can you speak a little bit to your TikTok ad strategy? Yeah, so what we had the benefit of when I got here of a lot of relationships with influencers all the way down from micro to macro influencers because we had just used them for a lot of retail launches. We'd use them in other areas besides D2C, put it that way. And so for me, it was, we have relationships with call it 20 that we can we are in direct communication with. We can quickly reach out to them. We can quickly brief out something for them. And obviously content creators are very quick at turnaround, especially some of the ones that are not in such high demand. So that's been great for me. Not only did we have a bunch of stored assets that I just needed a quick edit, but we have that direct line of communication. So that's for us. We're in the process now of 
we have an internal uh, content creation team. We're in the process of making that process better on how we're how we're generating our own. So the goal in Q1 is, you know, how what's the process we can use so that we can spin up 10 pieces of, of UGC style creative a quarter, and then we'll turn that quarterly into a month so that we're constantly backfilling that. But we've, we, we've got a great amount of content. We also have a good product that helps with content. You're talking about desserts and chocolates and cookies and things like that, right? So it's very nostalgic for people to put mini cookies in a bowl of cereal and have it feel like a cereal that all of us used to eat, right? So we have, we have great assets already in place that we, I could just take a look at thousands of pieces of content and say, hey, ho, have we looked, have we thought about these from a more direct response perspective or an advertising perspective? With a product like yours, which is a better for you style product, it's it's sort of a, a problem solving product. You said it's got that nostalgic factor, obviously, but then it also has the, the benefit of being something that, you know, replaces sugar from your diet in all these innovative ways. But I wanted to ask, what are the biggest challenges of marketing a better for you product? A couple things. Uh, time of year. So we just got off our worst quarter, Q4. It's more, more, more like December. People, people want the sugar in December, right? They, they, they want it all. It's, it's, it's. So it's really funny to watch the market share changes on a platform like Amazon during December, and the ones who, help, even within Better for You category, those that probably have a lot more sugar inside of them than those that don't tend to do much better in December. So time of year is a challenge. Q1 on the flip side is our Super Bowl. So everybody, you know, New Year, New Year is overused. We all know that. But but end of the day, like the psychology of humans during Q1 is such that lines up perfectly for our brand. But I really think I think the challenge is a couple things. One, from the consumers who are in the better for you space, I would put myself in that camp. Like we, we have been here for years. Um, we buy these types of products anyway. Um, they've tasted so many bad versions of this product because there's such an evolution here where 10 years ago, you did not find products better for you products in general. And they would have been crammed with sucralose or aspartame totally. or something anyway, right? So it's like what was better for you then, right? It was just slightly better than the old one. Um, with With the evolution of the category, you've seen a lot of misses because it's hard. Right, we know ourselves. We've tried a lot of products that just did, couldn't quite get there, um, so we just never launched them. But so you, so you've got a consumer base that's tried a lot of really bad products, and so they're really skeptical when they see any better for you product that it's actually going to taste good, right? And then on the other side of the of the fence, what I would say is, it's still. I think when you're in health and wellness has is been a huge part of my life my entire life and then I started a, a better for you brand I guess let's just say so it's really easy to be in your uh, echo chamber in your own bubble and feel like the bubble's much larger than it is when the reality is I think the better for you category is still serving a lot fewer people than any of us expect it to in the future so you've got a limited audience size there Right. So I think between those are the two biggest challenges where if, if you if you're in the space, it would feel like a layup. But there's also a lot of competition and a lot of bad products out there. And if you're not in the space, like getting that chasm of trying to get someone from um, not thinking about better for you types of products to getting for you is obviously the bigger opportunity, but it's the more challenging one as well. And I imagine you deal you deal with a slightly more educated consumer. If they are looking for those better for you things, they're probably more hyper conscious of other aspects of your product, the ingredients, the packaging, the whole experience. Is that something that you find as well? 
1000%. I mean, we, you know, we're talking about new products that we're launching coming up here yesterday on a team call. And this was the exact thing was brought up. What we do on those calls is we, we think through the lens of our consumer who is really diligent every single ingredient in there. So we look at it from, from an innovation standpoint, our, our innovation team knows what we want to use and what we won't use. But there's also this really funny or tricky element is a better way to say that of, of ingredients that we know are on our yes side. We'll use these for all of these reasons, but for whatever reason in a Facebook thread or, or Reddit thread, the consumers in the space hate that ingredient for whatever reason. Right. It's been vilified for whatever reason. And so you're absolutely right. It is really tricky because because consumers are all over every single ingredient they use. Some of them are very, very educated. But on the flip side, maybe they're educated um, in a certain way that who knows how how good that education is. Right. They've heard these five facts or six facts or these ingredients. And and whether that those the truths they hold to be true or true or not is up to them. So that's it's a tricky dance. It's a double-edged sword too, because the more engaged they are on these things, that those are just more touch points that you have to build that relationship with. On the flip side, what are the what are the the like the best things about about marketing an innovative, better for you brand? I mean, it, to me, it's we're sugar is the is the thing we need to get out of the American diet. If we we could get through all of these, you know. 80% of every quote unquote lifestyle diet out there are exactly the same, even 90%, right? They're talking about removing sugar from your diet, removing starches, removing the things that don't really work well with your body long-term and increase inflammation. Sugar's it. Sugar is the 80-20. I talk a lot about the 80-20. Sugar's the 80-20 of getting the United States and the developed world and the entire world healthier. And so we, and, and with that, most people think comes with sacrificing completely on the snacks you love and the desserts that you love. When we're bringing a product that literally doesn't, you don't have to sacrifice. So you can remove the thing that if you removed it, if most people removed it from their diets or lowered the amount that they're taking in, they would be healthier, full stop. And we are taking that and we're delivering still a delicious treat that you know and love without the sugar or with very low amounts of sugar. I mean, that's, that's a perfect world for me. And it's such a global challenge, honestly. I've spent a lot of time in South and Central America and all over Asia. Just the, the like the sugar water drink, the the sugar industry is just has such deep, you know, tentacles in, into our whole world right now. So it, it's quite a, quite a, a market rife with opportunity, I would say. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know, you think back to the beginning of of um, how people were bringing low fat to market. Low fat to market was just removing fat, replacing it with sugar, some sort of sugar substance, right? But but back to the conversation we were just having at the consumer at the time was just reading a label and thought fat was bad as a blanket statement. So this has no fat. That means it's good for you. We weren't looking at the sugar content or some of the other content. And that's how it started. So absolutely. That's- and there was actual fraudulent research in that area. <laughs> I remember that uh, I read the New York Times article on that specific situation on the, you know, the sugar lobby paying to demonize fat. That's some interesting things. There's, uh, you know, it's, yes, the environment matters, what people are reading matters, and who's in charge of what's being published 
have a lot of power at the end of the day. And so, yeah, there's, there's a full on education, re-education probably that needs to take place over time or which is happening. People are finding their own sources, whether they're good sources or not is, is to be determined. But that's what I love about this is, is sugar. I think everyone would agree that sugar is bad for you. And if you still want to enjoy the things you want to enjoy without sugar, then what a perfect spot to sit in for, as a marketer with a product that tastes great, that doesn't have the sugar. Now, I think you're kind of describing this, and I know it was decided, it was obviously created before you joined the team, but can you speak a little bit to where the, the, the term high-key or the brand high-key, what that speaks to? Yeah, high-key, is it speaks to, right, for one, being high-key excited is, is about being excited about something, right? So uh, high-key is, is about being excited about the fact that you can still enjoy your snacks. You know, FOMO NOMO is something that was a tagline that we've had with the brand forever. So uh, there's no more missing out. There's no more missing out. Let's be excited about the things that you can eat. Let's not let's not look uh, sadly upon the things that you can't eat, right? You can still go and enjoy everything that you used to love without all the ingredients that you don't need in your body and, and really your body's going to do without, um, do better without. You can enjoy that. And and that's what that's the brand itself. The, the visual has come a lot, really long way since the beginning stages. We even did a, a visual rebranding last year that I think the team just did an amazing job on. I love the visuals of our brand. Um, but at the core of it, that's what it is. There's no more missing out, right? FOMO NOMO is 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 at the core and removing sugar from the American diet is the mission behind the brand. I feel like low key is the term I hear more often. I don't actually hear. And, and so it, it just creates an interesting sort of like question when I hear high key, because I, I don't hear high key in the discourse too much, but I instantly get it because I because low key is such a you know, it's low key part of of uh, of the cultural discourse right now. That's exactly right. I think I think it's a little bit um, progressive, if I'm being honest, right? I think high key in the vernacular isn't as widely used to your point, but because people immediately get it, there's no thinking involved, which is great. And then I think over time, eventually, whether it gets used more in in sort of discourse or not, who knows? But people do immediately get it, and then when you just dig a little bit deeper, all of it starts to wrap up and make a lot of sense. One of the things we're experiencing in January versus Q4, and I wanted to ask how you play into this. Like, if you see Q4 and December specifically being your worst, uh, you know, your worst month, and and January being your your best month, if you can flip those quarters, because it's going to cost you. We're seeing like five or six times as much in December and November to advertise in these platforms, and and January we're hitting, uh, you know, with some great results early on. Is that something that you play into your budgets? Are you actually lowering your budgets in Q4 and then and then really front loading in Q1? One thousand percent. You know, we just got done, obviously, uh, building our budget for for this now this year, two thousand twenty two, and it's front loaded, right? So uh, think about it at the tactical level, like build build your database when it's cheaper and better to build your database. Take more advantage of your database when it's cheaper and harder to build your database. So um, that yes, we absolutely will spend more in Q one than we will in Q four. We'll spend more in Q two than we'll spend in Q three, right? So it's sort of sort of uh, slowly declining in terms of how much we'll spend build up that audience, build up that list, build up our customer base. And then um, what we do a lot more of in Q4 is is take advantage, make offers, right? Get people in, get people to reorder, things along those lines. So what is going to be your biggest focus in 2022 to grow Hikey? We're really we're leaning into uh, interestingly enough, we're leaning into paid media. I would say Hikey has had the benefit of not having to lean into paid media in a heavy way. And that speaks a lot to the product. It speaks a lot to how good we are with our sales team in retail and our Amazon team. But 
as we see a lot on, on the Twitter and LinkedIn threads, I think when you're using paid media to try and build a brand, it's really challenging from a, from a brand building and P&L perspective. When you have an established brand with a great product and great repeat order rate and great retention, great conversion rates, great landing pages, right? Like that to me, what, what I was saying to the team a few weeks ago is when you, when you can lean in, when you have the opportunity to, that means you've done a lot of things right leading up until this point. So our opportunity, we've got some really awesome products coming down the pipe, which I'm really, really excited about. So I can't really disclose, but that, that's a huge focus of ours is, is getting into an, uh, an amazing new category that, that we believe we can win in. Um, but on the, on the core side of the business, it's growing our core, which is our best product and getting more brand awareness, right? So step back from paid media, brand awareness. We don't think nearly the amount of people who, who should know about high key do know about high key. So we need to increase brand awareness. We're going to do that through a lot of sampling, cross channels, and we're going to do that through a lot of paid media and making sure that we can. And we know that the core fundamentals of our business are what allow us to lean into paid media, the opposite of just using paid media to try and build a brand. Which is so much harder to do these days. Uh, you really can't. You really yeah. can't. I don't. I think that's probably a, a safe way to say it. How has PR played into into this getting this the word out? Because I know you've you've had a, a, some some good press for sure. Is that something you want to continue with in twenty twenty two? Of course, of course. PR's PR's good. I, you know, I, I, it's funny. Many people, many brands that are or people that I spoke to aren't aren't overly thrilled with whomever they're using for PR or their agency they're using, and and probably I think that's a function of unrealistic expectations on what PR can do for you, right? But we we love PR, right? If you can be in, in publications regularly from third party. You know, we both know that people are using this type of strategy and ads a lot, right? Sort of media property sending to a page that's not from you or whitelisting white uh, an influencer, UGC, conceptually is the same thing. If I'm a consumer, I'm hearing about it from a different source, then I believe it more than if I hear it from the source itself. And so I think that not as the only strategy, but we absolutely have used PR and will continue to use PR to increase brand awareness. And it goes back to the same point I think I just made, which is if you don't have um, your website, your storefront on Amazon, if you're not available widely, it's harder to take advantage of a tactic like PR. If you are available widely and you, you believe in the tenets of what you've set up on your storefront on those different channels and in brick and mortar, then how could PR not provide a, a nice halo for the brand and the brand awareness. You mentioned a little bit about expectations working with agencies, with PR agencies specifically. Can you describe a little bit how Hi-Key and, and your marketing team kind of works with external agencies and what you, do you have any advice for, for brands out there in, in how to work with agencies and what to keep internal? Less on the um, what to keep internal. I really think that that's up to the brand itself. It depends on who you have internally and whether or not you should bring it internally. In other words, if you have a, one or two leaders who have experience in each of these and have the ability to hire, let's just say, a media buyer and oversee the media buyer, then you have the type of situation that is conducive to having an internal media buyer. That doesn't mean you should do it, but the point is a lot of factors dictate whether you should have an in-house or out-house, and that's a conversation that goes on repeatedly. Should I do this in-house or out-house? And I don't think that's the right question, should I? It's can you first, and then if you can, then should you? And that's up to the brand and what the people that they have. When we're working with agencies, I've made the mistake of hiring agencies when I knew nothing and expecting the agency to do everything, 
right? I want the agency to be my VP of performance marketing. I also want them to come up with the strategy, execute against everything that needs to happen inside of it, and then and then run all the media. And so with the experience, having worked with a ton of agencies the wrong way, um, have a, a better way that I think that we're working with them, which is just knowing what exactly they will do for you. Right. Let's just use paid media or performance marketing as an example. Right. Realistically, what they should do is set up your campaigns um, with the right type of structure. Right. Have a good testing methodology. If they run, if they create content for you, great. If they don't, you should be feeding them a ton of content. But that needs to be clear ahead of time. Um, and then you should be in. If you have the ability to look inside those accounts, awesome. You should be. If not, make sure that they're delivering the types of reports that give you the insights that you need. But just being very clear about where the line for them stops and where you start. And the biggest piece of advice I would give is they're a partner of yours. An agency is a partner of yours that's helping you execute against a strategy that you should have put together and have were clear about the gaps that you had on your team about what it was going to take to execute against that. And then you brought them in. Right. So they are a partner of yours to help you execute on your strategy, not the other way around. And you mentioned it off the top, viewing them as your your head of performance marketing, which sort of implies that they're that they're in the fold, that they that, that the lines of communication are so open, the the the, the way that they're incentivized it aligns with what you're trying to do. Um, and that's at Pilot House, you know, obviously how, how we try to treat things with with just constantly open lines of communication and being fully aligned on on goals across multiple platforms, because that's a whole other thing when it when it comes into using potentially different agencies for different media channels, for instance, um, it can be a challenge occasionally. Yeah. I mean, bring them in, let them know, right? Have have good, honest dialogue about what's going on inside of the business, um, what's going on in different channels. And, you know, like customer acquisition cost is obviously a huge metric of ours. Uh, an agency is not going to have line of sight into your customer acquisition cost. They'll have a cost per order right, on the platforms that they're doing, maybe, right? Because that even attribution is tough, but constantly giving them that info that they need. Right. Here's our revenue. Here's the total new customers we've gotten. You know, here's the total media we've used between you and another partner. Um, we uh, we are working with uh, an agency, uh, a couple of agencies on the paid media front. But yeah, just making sure that they're clear that we have another agency running a slightly different strategy, getting all everyone on the same call together, so that we just make sure everyone's ultra clear on what everyone else is doing, what our goals are, and then high level of communication. What's the potential? I always like to hear people's thought for how big their company can get. Like, what do you think the potential is for high key in the next two to three years? Man, unlimited is such a uh, overused word, right? It's also not really definable. But to the point that we were making earlier, you're talking about, I think we're at the early stages of the education on how evil sugar is. And if sugar is, uh, it's, it's in a lot of things, obviously, these days, but the biggest culprit is dessert, then how could we not have an, a, a huge opportunity in front of us? I think there'll be multiple players. There already are multiple players. I think multiple players will have big businesses. You know, when we started uh, Factor, we said the same thing, meal delivery companies, multiple players will be winners here because there's such a tremendous opportunity. And I would say the same about high key is that there could be four or five winners, quote unquote, in this space. I think I think we can be, uh, we've, we've grown very quickly in, in a very short period of time. And I think we can continue that level of growth in the next two years and beyond because um, what you're building is a community of people who want to enjoy their desserts without the sugar. And how could that audience of people not grow? 
And it's it's such yeah it's going to be such a fast growing business. I'm curious, like who do you even think of as your competitors? Are you are you thinking about you know established dessert businesses? Are you thinking about rival you know sugar replacement companies? Like who do you think of as your competitors? Yeah, a little bit of both, right? So if you think about like uh, Mondelez and Oreo cookie, that that's a competitor. I think you're going to start to see market share shift from some of the the brand names in full sugar cookies into some of the better for you. So uh, competitor to a certain extent. Um, and then, you know, on the better for you side, looking at a brand like Quest. Quest Nutrition's done a great job of building a better, better for you. Um, snack, bars, uh, cookies, things along those lines. Lenny and Larry's is another example of, of another brand that's in a similar space to us. So we, we think about both. You know, anyone that's eating cookies, eating snacks, chips that we have is is technically a competitor. We're looking more at the better for you space. And I just think the better for you space is the one that's growing more, obviously, than the more traditional one. Okay, so this is a, a one of our standard stock questions here. If we were to provide you a $50,000 grant to be used in your marketing in 2022, where exactly would you deploy that? I would I would fully flush out the zero party data, right? I would have fully fleshed out like questionnaires, pop-ups, surveys at every part of the journey and really just stabilize um, or lean into, I guess, more is, is a better way to put it gathering our own data from our own customers. And I imagine you're doing this to an extent already. What have been the more successful zero-party data capturing uh, experiments that you've run so far? Yeah, just just uh, asking more often via email post-purchase. The easiest place to start is just asking questions of the customers who have shown to be loyal to you and in and, and reaching out to them. I think everyone has um, is a little bit skeptical. It's part of, part of what's going on here, why people use Slack every day instead of just picking up the phone sometimes for a quick five-minute phone call or a text message instead of that. Same would go for our customer database, right? We're, we're very um, hesitant to reach out and ask for information from people because we feel like we wouldn't like it if people did that to us. But these are our best customers who've shown a proclivity to order from us. They want to be part of our community. And why not just ask? And I think you'll be really, really surprised at how quickly or easily a customer who's a customer of yours is willing to give you some information, assuming you're not asking them for too much, right? But uh, that's the quickest way is, is, is take your VIP customers best, get get a list of questions that you would want to know from them, and then reach out and ask them. And then you can start to build backwards from like, hey, on, on site before they purchase or during consideration phase, things like that. And these are questions about cadence, questions about taste, questions about what they like to see, what they don't like to see. What, what What's the essence of what you're trying to determine here? Yeah, I want to understand what's driving them to purchase our product. What is the underlying thing? It's going to be different for everyone. We have our own version of why we think people buy, and, and that's been validated in some cases and not in others. But um, where did you hear about us? Most the, the best question any of us could get with attribution going away, and why are you buying from us? In, in a couple different forms, right? But what's the trigger event that got you thinking about a brand like us? Um, and then there's a little bit more, you know, how is your site experience, things like that. That's a little less, that's more tactical than it is strategic. But any brand I would think would want to know how someone found out about them, if they ended up flowing through to purchase, and then what is it that's making them want to buy? Like, what is it in their life that's going on that they think this product can solve, right? What what was life like before they bought this product? What do they think it will be like after they buy this product? Those, those sound like very, you know, like that, that's persuasion 101, obviously, but you really do want to know that's what moves people to buy. 
So you don't ask those necessarily straight out because I don't think a customer knows exactly how to answer that question. So it comes in different forms on how you ask the question, but that's the root of what I would want to know. You've got such a good story with your brand and you've got such a good uh, audience is accessible in all sorts of different ways. So many people are awakening to the fact that they want to be more conscious of their sugar. And I wanted to just ask if you've done any thinking on whether what sort of content marketing that you're interested in in 2022, have you have you thought of experimenting with podcasts or or any or any of this kind of thing? Because I, I could just hear Joe Rogan, you know, just going off on on these these sugar substitute cookies. Yeah. Um, newsletter. So I would say um, newsletter. We're looking um, we're looking to explore OTT. Right. So just streaming ads, um, podcast ads, newsletter. I think a lot of the. I, those are fairly traditional, right? But maybe not the, the the lowest hanging fruit when people are thinking about paid media and just going paid social and paid search. But as a way to incorporate that story, I really do think storytelling is important. We all know that. It's sort of said all too often. But for a brand like ours, I think it's critical. So, so the thinking is how do we get that storytelling element? And your point like joe rogan to have joe rogan talking about you know have one of his his tirades about sugar i would love to have that as a clip right that can be that that they're playing everywhere that we can play everywhere um but yeah that's that's the type of content marketing i think modern day content podcast i would love to have a podcast you know i think uh, it's it's sitting and talking with really smart people about um about the things that we're dealing with in the world yeah, you you know it firsthand. How could that how could that go against you? How it would work for our brand? You know, we'd have to put some thought into. But yeah, I think it's ripe. It's a ripe opportunity with the brand being high key. That idea of living life in this sort of like no, you know, not making uh, sacrifices, still getting the things you love while making these better choices for you. I, I just feel like there's a really fertile ground for for discussion that converge into all sorts of interesting areas. So I, I yeah, I would urge urge. I, I'm obviously a, a proponent of podcasts. They've worked well for D 2 C. I think it's a good idea, right? It, it, because it would be different, right? So you're talking about um, most people talking about those things are health and wellness experts and, and God bless all of the health and wellness experts out there. I've learned a lot from all of them as well. This would be a little bit different angle on it. So it's it's smart. Maybe we'll do it. Any other D2C brands? You, you mentioned one in the pre, just in the pre-talk here. Are there any other D2C brands that you wanted to shout out that you think are doing a great job? Yeah, well, so I mentioned I got the the best Christmas present I got this year was uh, Ember. It's a coffee mug that is self-regulating. Well, not self-regulating. It's temperature-regulated coffee mug on an app on my phone. And I used it today for the first time. It's brilliant. I'm sitting here drinking a cold cup of coffee here. And it's just <laughs> totally, totally it which I've done. So it, it begs questions of like, why did I wait till January 7th to use this thing if I'm an avid coffee drinker? But but. That's a story for another day. Uh, so that's a great one. You know, Twillery, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Twillery. They're, they're a men's fashion brand that um, I've recently found. So they've got dress shirts. They've got uh, blazers, things like that. I love their marketing. Most of their email marketing is just plain text. It sort of looks like info marketing type of emails, but they work really, really well. So like very limited design. Uh, Viori is not no longer um, a secret by any stretch of the imagination. I, I found Viori years and years ago and, and am constantly draped in Viori brand. So I love that brand as well. I am not aware of either of these, so I will be checking them out. I was always impressed with Chubby's as an apparel brand and their email marketing campaigns, their SMS stuff. I think just does such a good job of, of indoctrinating people to the brand story. 
Ryan, I want to thank you so much for coming on the D2C podcast today. If people, I know you're really active on Twitter, on LinkedIn. How do you suggest people find you if they want to follow? Yeah, both those platforms. So uh, LinkedIn, I've, I've just recently got into Twitter as well. So um, RS Rouse on Twitter and on LinkedIn, just go search my name. I think I'm the only one on there. But um, yeah, I would ha- be happy to have anyone come on over. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. If you're not a subscriber to our newsletter, you can do that right now at directtoconsumeralloneword.co. I'm Eric Dick, and this has been the D2C Podcast. We'll see you next time.